Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thank you again for joining us for this edition of the Out of the Question podcast. To get right into our subject, the question that's being posed today is this, is satire unbiblical? Now, just to make sure we're all on the same page, I went to Noah Webster's 1828 Dictionary of the American Language, and it defines satire this way, a noun taken from the Latin satira, so named from sharpness, pungency. And the definition goes, a discourse or poem in which wickedness or folly is exposed with severity. It differs from lampoon and pasquinade, a word I was not familiar with, in being general rather than personal. So, Charles, hello. Hello, Andrea. So we're going to talk about satire and how I came up with this particular question is not that you weren't my first choice, but I tried to get the fellows from the Babylon Bee to agree to be on the podcast, but apparently they're quite busy. And I, for one, thoroughly enjoy the satire site, the Babylon Bee. And I got to asking myself, is it right that I like it so much or I like some of the other memes that I see on social media? So we both decided this would be a good topic And um, I have my opinions on the subject, and I'm sure you have yours. Well, let me just say right at the outset that uh, I don't know where we're going to end up with this, but if nothing else, I've gotten a good uh, uh, substitute password, Pasquinade. That's great. (laughs) So there's there's a little bit of sarcasm for you. but uh, Right, but now everybody knows your password. Yeah, but they don't know where I I won't use it. So there you go. Well, it is a, a very interesting subject, not only because of the popularity of the Babylon Bee, uh, but also because a lot of what has been American cultural humor has been based on sarcasm. Uh, it's hardly, I don't know about today, I haven't watched a sitcom in quite a while, but uh, say, take, for example, the, the, probably one of the most popular sitcoms in American cultural history, Seinfeld. Uh, just about every episode of that show involved a whole lot of sarcasm and satire. Uh, so it is kind of woven into the fabric of American culture, but that raises the question, like we said at the beginning, is using that or speaking that way unbiblical? So before we continue, Noah Webster, believe it or not, didn't define sarcasm, but he did define sarcastical, an adjective meaning bitterly satirical, scornfully severe, taunting. So In terms of what makes satire and sarcasm different, and I'm not sure I've always differentiated the two, is that one has a motive or intent to hurt, and another one has a motive or intent of exposing something and using humor or folly as the mechanism by which to do it. So I think in some of the sitcoms and and some of the comedians and how they've carried on over the years, I'm not sure that those two concepts were differentiated. 
Yeah, I'm not either. And uh, when you first brought that up, the, between the difference of the two words and, and Webster's uh, use or pref preference for sar sarcastical, was that it? Sarcastical. Yes, sarcastical. Uh, it thought I thought to myself, well, that's sort of like the difference, but the, the different understanding of the term barbecue. You know, here in the South, it's something you eat. Up in the Northeast, it's something you do. That's right. Um, but I think one of the keys to all of this, and and really this can apply to anything in life, is what we are using any particular thing, in this case, sarcastical speech, what are we using it for? And I think it's reflected in the definition that you just gave from Webster's Dictionary of low those many centuries ago, uh, that it's to be used in a way that exposes evil and promotes good. I think I'm hearing that in that definition. What do you think? Absolutely. And, you know, you could also look at satire as a genre um, in terms of whether it's written work or film. Different uh, meanings come through in a tragedy, in a comedy, in a drama. And satire could fall into its own category. And I mentioned the Babylon Bee. Well, just take the name, the Babylon Bee. The Babylon Bee is kind of like a newspaper, the way you might have in our country. I mean, in our, my state, it's the Sacramento Bee. Right. And I'm sure that's true in other places as well. By calling it the Babylon Bee, there is a intent to convey that we're not, don't confuse this with heaven. Don't confuse this with a, an obedient society. It's like, we are in captivity in Babylon. So just the name itself has a satirical nature to it. Yes, and I think in the case of uh, that group in particular and their web presence, they have found a way to um, go after and expose the Babylonian system, to, use, to stay with the term, uh, to make fun of it, uh, to show how absurd it is. Uh, and that's across the board. I, I'm, I'm amazed at the breadth of how they are able to just go from one thing to the other and um, turn it into something very humorous and, and at the same time expose the absurdity. Um, uh, one just crossed my gab feed. Google erases the entire state of Georgia from Google Maps, you know, something, <laughs> some sort of thing like that. Okay. I mean, you see that, uh, that that's making a point based on things that are taking place here in real time. And on Easter, they had um, that the Romans cracked down on the fact that Jesus did not obey the stay in the tomb order. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I know that there's, there might be some people who would find that a little hard to take. And maybe this is a good point, if you'd like, we can aim directly at this question about whether that sort of thing is unbiblical. And in my estimation, it is not. And the reason for that yeah, well, let me, let me just say it is not unbiblical in principle, but like with the Webster de definition, it depends on what it's being used for. But one reason I don't believe uh, it is unbiblical is because we find the use of this type of speech in the Bible itself. Yes. And I'll just start with one uh, that I know you're probably familiar with. It's one of the most popular or most famous, and that's in the book of 1 Kings chapter 18, where Elijah is having sort of a, uh, a verbal jousting match, if not a religious competition, with the prophets of uh, the false god Baal. Or my, my three semesters of Hebrew makes me want to say Baal. Baal. Uh -uh. 
But at any rate, uh, and I'm just going to read that, the First Kings 18.27. I'm reading it from sort of a paraphrased translation because I think it brings out a little clearer what's happening. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming. And some of the more literal translations, including this one, actually put in, or maybe he's relieving himself. <laughs> There's one uh, called the Complete Jewish Bible, where I believe they actually use the term, maybe he's on the potty. Uh, I think the Hebrew construction there actually literally means that. It implies that's what he's doing. But, you know, in our English translations, we kind of clean it up a bit. And then finally it says, or maybe he's on a trip or is asleep and needs to be awakened. So that's just dripping with sarcastic. Oh, absolutely. Intent. Yeah. And, and revealing what's there and, and their presuppositions. And I think that's what good satire does. Aside from unearthing presuppositions, I think one of the benefits for the choir, you might say, that the Babylon Bee is preaching to, although I know people who are not Christians who love the Babylon Bee, um, mm -hmm. is that they're giving people a way to think about what's happening, that rather than being uptight on, oh my goodness, look what they're going to make us do, or look what they're saying now, to mock it for what it is. Because, you know, when Elijah was mocking them, the miracle had yet to happen. Right. Yes, indeed. And I, um, I think that in terms of the, the bee, you know, they are operating and the interviews that I've seen with some of them and, you know, just generally seeing their various posts and memes and things like that, they're operating from a generally conservative, small orthodox uh, Christian standpoint, but it appeals across the board. I don't think I've ever seen them do anything sarcastic uh, relating to you know, a, a respected and um, uh, religious leader of integrity. Uh, I, I noticed today, maybe one reason they couldn't be on with us today is that they did an interview with uh, a fairly well-known conservative traditional Catholic bishop. Uh, I happened to catch a little bit of that, uh, and he was going into some detail about his understanding of these things. Uh, so there's a broad appeal that these people have, but if, you, uh, you know, if you're wor worshiping the creature rather than the creator, you're probably going to have a problem with what they're saying. Right. For example, I, I'm actually sort of impressed with their theological understandings of the nuances of different denominations. There was one not too long ago that a Baptist preacher confesses to his congregation, asks for their forgiveness because he doesn't like casseroles. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's the sort of thing that just makes you laugh and you realize sometimes the things that even Christians put too high up on the list of what makes someone right and what makes someone wrong. So it, it's always good to be able to laugh at yourself. And uh, I think they balance it out pretty well, having us laugh at ourselves where we should be not taking ourselves too seriously. And then also making a social commentary. Yeah. And if I may, I would like to uh, share another um, biblical passage, this one from the new Testament where we find this type of language and uh, for the purpose of which it's intended being used. And this is by Paul. And then I'd like to mention moving centuries after the New Testament, an, another well-known proponent of this type of speech uh, from the Protestant tradition. Um, in 1 Corinthians 4.8, uh, Paul addressing the, the church at Corinth, he says, you think you already have everything you need. You think you're already rich. You have begun to reign in God's kingdom without us. 
I wish you really were reigning already, for then we would be reigning with you. Now, reading that out of context, you might not catch the sarcasm, but any good study Bible or commentary will point out that's exactly what he's doing. And he even says a few verses later in chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 4.14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So he's very clear about why he was using that type of uh, language uh, to them. Exactly. Before you go to the thing centuries later, I know Dr. Rushduni in his commentary on Romans and Galatians, as he's talking about um, Paul admonishing the Galatians because they had started listening to the Judaizers that were saying that they needed to be circumcised first in yes. order to become Christian. Um, the word he uses is talked, I wish that they would be cut off talking just like the physical process of circumcising. So it, to say that the use of satire um, is wrong, I mean, Paul was trying to get them to realize that they were going the wrong way. And I know just as a parent, there were times that I had to use satire to get my children to understand that what they were doing was ridiculous and absurd and get them to see that. So to say that it's unbiblical, which some people do say, I think they missed the point that the motive and what you're trying to accomplish is important. Yeah. And as I've said a moment ago in the passage that I was reading from First uh, Kings 18, 27, you know, a lot of times the English translations of a certain era obscure some of the meaning it's sort of like, uh, you know, the 1940s and 50s movie censors. Uh, they, they, it would not be polite to actually translate this uh, the literal way. And, um, uh, you know, there's the story in, of uh, Gideon, and he actually uh, attacks the king. And the language is pretty clear. The king was on the toilet when he attacked him. And you, you would never understand that from the King James Bible or some of the others. But some of the newer translations are concerned to uh, get the full meaning uh, because, uh, like we're saying, there's a lot of satire and earthy language. But probably the person who, at least in Christian circles, is, is best known for earthy language is the one and only Martin Luther. <laughs> um, my, my, this man, uh, he knew how to turn a phrase. And some of it, by today's standards, is downright vulgar. But he, he used it to great effect. Uh, I will invite uh, our listeners sometime to uh, Google or duck, duck, go Luther's statements about the Pope as the Antichrist. And you can read some of the things that he says there. Um, one of my favorite things he said <clears throat> really has nothing to do with anything particularly religious other than the fact that he could um, write and he wrote uh, aggressively. <laughs> you can Vociferously. Thank you. Uh, and uh, somebody commented how, how his output was so amazing. And he famously replied, well, that's because I give birth as soon as I conceive. <laughs> I've always thought that was a very clever thing. Absolutely. So. Which goes to the whole idea of have we lost a lot by the quote unquote polite translations? And uh, there are many places in scripture where I can see a particular passage that a preacher might want to avoid because as soon as you translate it the way it was written, 
Um, you might have the mothers and fathers in the congregation saying, thanks a lot, Pastor. Now I have to go home and explain this to my child. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I know uh, in some of Dr. Rushdoony's writings, you, you will find him making reference to uh, a Bible that was produced, I believe it was in the 40s or 50s. It's called the, the Modern English Bible. Another uh, description of it was the, the Berkeley version. And I think it was actually done out by some scholars based in California. Um, it was sort of a precursor to the Revised Standard Version and the NIV. And it's not, you can find copies of it today. Of course, they're all would be used. But it's noteworthy to me that in several places in his writings, Dr. Rustini made reference to that translation. And it was a little bit more paraphrased than the King James that he quoted most often. Uh, so even there, he found use for translations that could take a little bit different approach than understanding a phrase, uh, giving us a fuller meaning, and especially in this issue relating to uh, sarcastical language. Um, as we've been saying all, all along here, a lot of that is completely obscured in the way some translations uh, give us these passages. Right. If you even think of at the end of the book of Job, where after Job's friends have... Um, pontificated. I don't think they would have called it that since there was no Pope, but they were telling him everything he needed to know and taking great pleasure in explaining to him what he didn't know. Even the way God talks to Job and then talks about his, his so-called friends, um, you could say that there was a lot of satire in that. Absolutely. And that's just another area where scripture is just full of this. I think uh, the challenge we have is that um, Again, and, and this represents, I think, um, sort of a disconnect in our thinking about the application of God's Word to every area of life. I mean, God's Word is His divinely inspired and errant Word. We, we don't disagree with that. Uh, but that doesn't mean it doesn't talk about real life. That doesn't mean it, it, it speaks uh, to issues relating to all kinds of things. And it's describing real living people who are dealing with real challenging problems or blessings or prosperity or, poor, or being poor or rich or whatever it was. And as in the case with Job, you've got a guy with a lot of misery in his life. And um, the Lord certainly used that occasion in, in sort of rebuking him uh, by making these statements. Well, can you do this? Can you do that? Come on, let, let's, let's see you do it. And because we so often associate uh, sarcastical language and satirical type writing with something other than scripture or religious writing, it can be a bit of a surprise, if not a shock to some folks to realize that, well, it's been there all along. Exactly. And I think probably the book that describes or, or is revelatory of this concept has to be the book of Proverbs, which I believe Dr. Rush Juni called it a commentary on the law. Mm -hmm. But when you have things like, as a dog returns to his vomit, so does a fool return to his folly. And uh, the, the whole description of the sluggard, um, I think it was meant to convey very strongly what it means to be a fool and why you wouldn't want to be one. Yes, I've often wished that he uh, had left us a commentary or a series of uh, sermons through the book of Proverbs, uh, because it's, it's, when you read his material, he often, very often quotes from uh, sometimes very specific chapters frequently uh, for reasons that you, uh, you just described, and one of which was Proverbs chapter 8, uh, all them that hate me love death. And what's interesting, I think there, and it's maybe a little bit of a twist on what we're talking about, 
is that in that book of Proverbs chapter 8, it's wisdom personified. And in that latter part of the chapter, when it says, all those who hate me, the me should be capitalized if we're doing it in you know our modern English way, referring to deity, because it refers to the wisdom of God. It's an extension of who God is. And, uh, and what's even more interesting is that the term is a feminine Hebrew word. And that doesn't mean there's a feminine side to God. I'm not saying that. Um, but it's interesting that one translation at least put that all them that hate me are in love with death. And that's a very strange way that somebody would be in love with death, but it is a, it is a profoundly accurate description of, of a decadent pagan society. Um, as an aside, I used to, when my children got to around eight or nine years old individually, when we would have our study time since I homeschooled, but individually I'd go through the book of Proverbs with them. And if you ever want to introduce every subject that someone needs to know about, um, the book of Proverbs is the place to do it. And I used to joke with my husband and say, well, I had to do the sex education lesson. I had to describe what this meant. And he would laugh and say, I knew you could do it, honey. But uh, <laughs> there's no holding back and saying that there's some parts of scripture that aren't appropriate for children. If it's in the scripture, it's appropriate for children, but it's incumbent on parents to explain it, not to explain it beyond what they can understand. But going through the book of Proverbs with children should give them a healthy fear of the Lord because it's full of the consequences of sin and the blessings of righteousness. Yes, and that goes to uh, <clears throat> the heart of the issue about the the ground out of which Scripture has come to us, and I mean the, the cultural and historical ground, and that the people of Older and New Testament times, they didn't live like we do now. The concept of private life was largely unknown to them. Uh, it, it was just a different way of living, and so there were various things that we today would consider very private things that were just simply a lot more out in the open because that's the way these folks had to live. I'm not saying they were libertines and you know, profligates or anything like that, but um, you know, I, I think sometimes we can cast a, a mystical, pietistic veneer over the peoples of the Christian and biblical past that that really really wasn't there. And so, when again to, to come back to the issue of this type of language and speaking. Uh, there was probably a lot more of that in their day-to-day -day speech than we might realize and perhaps would be surprised by. Right. When Jesus talks about it'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man, um, I imagine it brought some laughs. I'm, I'm sure it did. <laughs> yeah. So another way to view satire, whether it's from the site we were talking about or even the Christian use of satire in writing or in filmmaking or just in conversation is that you can go through the scriptures and find many things that um, could be presented in a way with real-time examples. For example, we were talking about the book of Proverbs. So Proverbs 9 says, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Repro reprove a wise man and he will love you. Well, the current situation that we find ourselves in with a divided country that's 
being prompted to be divided by those who would like to control talks about, uh, you know, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. Well, it would be very helpful to sort this out by pointing out the difference between somebody who wants to live his life the way he feels he should and someone else who's going to reprove him because he doesn't agree with the way that person thinks. So just by um, having talking points and being able to know that you're standing on solid ground, I think would help people not be so convinced that we're all going to go under uh, this this heavy hand of tyranny that as Christians, if we apply the scripture, we can do quite well in communicating these truths to other people. That is an excellent point because it's easy to be pessimistic uh, in the face of what we see today. Um, but I think one of the signs of a genuine biblical optimism and hope is that you can take an approach to especially the evil that needs to be exposed and laugh at it. Um, you know, many people have heard it said that that's something that you, the, the, the people who want to foist any type of tyranny or evil upon us, they don't want to be laughed at. They don't want to get the least idea that there's something about them that can be made fun of or held up to uh, sarcasm. And that is a, a very effective way to disarm it. And I think that goes right back to Webster's um, definition. Uh, what is the purpose of which the, for which the sarcasm is uh, being used? I mean, if I want to come up with a sarcastic story about a fellow pastor that I don't particularly care for, uh, something that's, that's not a proper use of sarcasm. Uh, but if I want to produce some kind of sarcastic comment or article relating to an evil person who is seeking to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, I think that would be a proper use of it if it's within, you know, the, the bounds of good taste. And it, it ends up being um, one of the tools in the toolbox. You know, if we're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then everything else will be added one of the ways in which we can pursue God's righteousness is by clearly demonstrating the antithesis between godliness and ungodliness, righteousness and sin, um, justice and injustice. And so by calling people on their inconsistencies, of which those that hate God are full of them, it behooves us to see it and then reveal it because what does the scripture say? I don't exactly remember where, but I know the, the 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 passage have nothing to do with the deeds of darkness, but expose them. So sometimes satire can be the way in which we expose them. And I think you posted something the other day on uh, April first uh, about uh, the, the fool and the reference to the fool who does not believe in God. D did you post that or did somebody else? No, I did post it. I said, Psalm 14.1 uh, gives us the basis on which recognizing those who deny his capital H existence. And it was really funny because a lot of people didn't get it. But then I would see on the comments, you did make me look that up. And of course, <laughs> 14.1 is the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so I thought that was a good way to designate April Fool's Day. What's important about that to our discussion is that, like you were just saying regarding pushing the antithesis, uh, whether you use that term or not, you, did, you mentioned antithesis. Um, this helps us realize 
the foolishness, not only of rejecting just, a, it's not just simply, a, okay, I, I believe there's a God or I don't believe there's a God. It's a recognition that when you do reject the truth of God's divine word law, then you're rejecting good sense. You're rejecting reason. You're rejecting everything that relates to the real world that he created. And when you reject reason, you become a fool. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the advantages of, again, this kind of sarcastical speech. It, it points out the utter foolishness of what we're seeing. I, I, if you'll allow me a personal example that relates to the times that we're in, my wife and I recently flew out to, to Arizona. And, you know, the airlines have all these strict uh, rules regarding COVID and all this stuff. And uh, you have to wear a mask the whole time you're in the airport. You have to wear a mask the whole time you're on the plane. It was a three and a half hour flight from Houston to where we were going. And, uh, you know, we're packed in like sardines. It was not one empty seat. And yet when we get up to Deplane, they had the, uh, the gall to say to us, now be sure when you get out in the airport, you maintain six feet distance. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's, it's hard to describe the, the absolute absurdity downright foolishness uh, of how these people think. And uh, it's not a question of, of being careful medically. It's just you can begin to see if you're looking at all at any of this biblically, and, and we could choose any other subject, not just this one, that at a certain point, the, the people who reject God's law, uh, the, the biblical worldview, they trend inevitably toward tyranny and evil and also stupidity. But I think there's a whole group of people and the undecided masses that just try to take the easy way out. So we wouldn't call them part of the dedicated minority on either side. Right. But I think it's important to speak up. So, for example, my husband and I went out to eat for the first time since November because California rules had limited the ability to eat indoors. So the rules were you had to wear a mask when you walked to your table. As soon as you sat at your table, you could take your mask off. But when you went up to the salad bar, you had to have your mask on and then somebody would be there to put gloves on you so that when you touched the utensils, you would have a glove on. And then when you were done, this same person had to take your gloves off and then you could go back and sit at your table and take your mask off. And so um, I saw a lot of humor in this because it was so utterly ridiculous. And so the, the server who was now at the point of taking my gloves off, she was apologizing, saying, I'm so sorry. And I said, nice and loudly, I said, oh, no, you don't have to apologize. Let's just all agree how utterly ridiculous this is. And I guess we'll all find a good laugh out of it. And she looked so relieved that I wasn't mad at her. But I always make sure when somebody comes up and says something that what I guess the new term is virtue signaling, have you you know gotten your vaccination or whatever it is, I always make a point to have a response ready. And sometimes one that's a little biting or humorous so that someone gets the idea that they really could think of this another way. Yes. And I'm just wondering, can you read the Webster definition one more time? Okay. Satire, it's a noun. It's from the Latin satira, so named from sharpness and pungency. So it's really meant to um, stick it to you. 
And the, the first definition is a discourse or poem in which wickedness or folly is exposed with severity. It differs from lampoon and pasquinade in being general rather than personal. And the second definition is severity of remark. It differs from sarcasm in not expressing contempt or scorn. Yeah, there's so much to unpack from uh, from that that's those statements. Uh, it, it's a marvelous explanation. But the reason I wanted to hear it again is because it highlights the fact that you're exposing or speaking a certain way about wickedness uh, or foolishness. But we should never forget that whenever we do that, uh, the people to whom we are speaking of, they may not like it very much. Uh, most people don't like to be told that they're being stupid or foolish. I don't even mean directly or made fun of because it helps them see or makes them see uh, the absurdity of what they're doing. And especially people in power, people who want power over other people. Um, that's the last thing they want is somebody to uh, make light of them because it questions their authority. Right. You made me think of an episode when I was growing up. I must have been somewhere in sixth or seventh grade and I overheard my mother and father talking about the fact that they didn't like that I was wearing eye makeup. Now, when I look back, Charles, on the eye makeup I was using, it was sort of iridescent green and it was called tortoise or something like that. And my mother and I would get into big fights over this. You shouldn't do it. And I was doing it anyway. And then I overheard my father say, don't waste your time on this. Someday she'll realize how ridiculous she looks, that she looks like a clown. <laughs> now, I wasn't even in the room, but I heard the way he said it, and I heard her laugh afterwards. Guess who changed the way <laughs> she put on her eye makeup? <laughs> in an instant. <laughs> I got a sense of what they thought of me. Yeah, that was a paradigm shift right there, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. And, you know, I never gave them credit. I never said thank you. <laughs> but I'm really grateful that I overheard that. Well, I'm thinking, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a perfect example. And that's, a, you know, I think a positive way. Um, I mean, your, your parents had your best interests at heart. Um, and it just took that, I guess you could say, uh, oblique method because it wasn't directed at you. You just happened to hear it. They didn't even know I was around. Right. So, but you got the point Yeah, <laughs> and, and it had the desired effect. Well, you know, I, I, something else has come to my mind about how, um, sarcasm and s uh, sarcastical, um, language and, and imagery. One of the, one of the earliest memes, if I can call it, that was an anti-Christian one. Uh, and you can find this in some books on uh, the history of the New Testament and um, the early Christian movement in the Roman Empire. But there's a very famous uh, etching in stone. It's somewhere in Rome or somewhere like that. And um, it, it's, it's a kind of a stick drawing of a cross, a very simple cross, you know, one line down, one line across. And there's a stick man. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm using this term to, to describe very primitive type of able to draw something. And you can tell it's a man on the cross, but he has the, the head of a donkey. And the subtitle is Alexander worships his God. So this is a very early pagan meme to uh, satirize uh, the truth of God's word. 
So there's a pagan side to this as well. And again, that goes right back to Webster's definition about what is a proper and improper use of it. And let's talk about how this has been used against the faith, not just then, but now. If you look at uh, television uh, sitcoms in the 60s and 70s, if you take a look at what happens on many university campuses, there's plenty of satire that was used against Christians. And I remember when my oldest was in, uh, in college, uh, he had a physics professor, was introductory to physics, a very funny man who, um, I think he was from Africa, I forget which, uh, which country, but he was very engaging. And then just off the cuff, he once said, so how many here believe in God? Stand up. And my son said about 20 people stood up. And then he went through the whole thing and said, ignorant, ignorant, ignorant. Mm. Well, about two weeks later, right before they were going to um, review for the midterm, he asked again, how many here believe in God? And my son said maybe eight stood up this time as opposed to the 20. And then he dismissed them all to go to the library to look up religion and find out that um, something derogatory about lots of different people believe a lot of different things. And he actually sent them out of the room in terms of um, not being able to review. So the satire and the sarcasm has been levied against Christians for quite some time. Now, I'm not saying respond in kind, but I'm saying that since the Bible doesn't forbid it, and we see it being used by those who were inspired to not only write the scripture, but we have God speaking himself, for example, in terms of Job, that it's a, a, a successful method, and the enemy has used it for quite some time, and it's not a bad idea for Christians to determine to use a very valuable and useful tool. Yes, and certainly other examples of uh, um, the unbiblical and anti-Christian forces doing that very thing and on a mass scale as in popular entertainment. And, uh, you know, it's rare that you find in sitcoms from the 80s or 90s and the 2000s, I guess, any character in a, in a sitcom or even a movie who is a Christian and is a sympathetic character. And uh, um, you have such things like from the old Saturday Night Live series, The Church Lady you know, which was meant to be clearly insulting. Right. And uh, so th that's another example of how Christians are, have been the, the brunt of sarcastic uh, portrayals. But the, your, your comment there about the, uh, the, the college and the professor made me remember a book that um, I, I would recommend to our listeners along these lines, uh, because it's not a question of sarcasm, but it, it, it's a question of showing how absurd the lives of uh, people who think that they're so smart by disbelieving in the Christian worldview. Um, it was published some years ago. The title is Intellectuals, and it was written by the British historian Paul Johnson. I think that was his name. Mm -hmm. And, and um, <clears throat> it, it is just a treasure trove of the real-life situations and stories of some of the great academic and intellectual movers and shakers of the 20th century. For example, Bertrand Russell, Jean-Paul Sartre, and uh, a number of other people. And, and he just simply tells the facts about the lives of these people, not necessarily. And there is, I think, as I recall, it's been a while since I've read it, a, a certain amount of uh, innuendo and sarcasm, but there's nothing, as far as I know, that's not true. So, you know, it, it brings to mind and it brings to the light 
these people who have postured themselves and have been elevated in a secular humanistic culture as the people that we ought to pay a great deal of attention to. But when you look at their personal lives, they were in shambles. Uh, why would anyone, I, I, if I may use a personal reference, when, when I was in college at the university, uh, I was a philosophy major. And this is back in the 70s when people thought about a lot of things, you know, other than internet stuff. And um, <clears throat> uh, one of the philosophers that I became deeply interested in was Jean-Paul Sartre and his brand of existentialism. And I literally tried to pattern my life because I was not a Christian. I tried to pattern my life over the basic philosophy of existentialism. And it's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> you know, even Sartre could not live that way. But I remember reading many years later in the memoirs of his live-in partner, Simone de Beauvoir, that he wrote his major philosophical works under the influence of hallucinogenic drugs. And I, I just remember being flabbergasted at the time that, holy cow, I'm trying to pattern my life after a guy that was high. <laughs> and and that, there again, that's the, the absurdity of, of this whole approach to denying the truths of God's word and following any other path than what he's laid out in scripture. Exactly. And that's the value of, quite frankly, knowing what you're talking about. Recently, I have been volunteering as a judge for homeschool and Christian school speech and debate competitions. And after years of doing this, I've decided that where I want to spend my efforts is with the apologetics group, because I think apologetics is very important. And you get a chance as a judge to give your comments after you've judged a particular contestant. And I have to laugh because whereas the questions that they have to prepare for are very good, how many of them approach it all the wrong way? So there might be a quote from Voltaire or a quote from Karl Marx or a quote from Sartre, as you, you know, were just referencing. And so they're supposed to create an argument that responds to this statement. Mm. And sometimes it's quite painful watching them do it because you can tell, number one, they don't necessarily understand the statement or its implications. But with some of the coaching I've been doing with some of these students subsequently, it's like you don't have to defend Karl Marx's statement or Voltaire's statement. Talk about who Voltaire was and what he believed, and then immediately go to how that's in opposition to what the word of God says. And now you're giving an apologetic. I think too often what happens is we give these enemies of God too much honor in trying to act as though their statements don't come from a worldview that at its core is at war, is at war with God. And so uh, I recommended when I said to one student, do you know who Voltaire is? And she said, no. I said, okay, well, don't ever try to approach that question until you know who the man was. And as soon as you know who the man is or was, then you'll be in a better position to refute it. And I think that uh, this goes back to the idea that as Christians and to faithfully do the Great Commission, we have to do more than just say, love Jesus. We have to understand the implication of how all-encompassing the Christian faith is. Absolutely, and I think what we have said uh, to this point shows that there is indeed a biblical foundation for uh, sarcastical writing and speech, and it serves an important purpose when done within biblical bounds. 
in, in terms of promoting uh, the truth of God's word and exposing those who are its enemies. Absolutely. Well, I should add, we have not been given any endorsement or payment for saying we like the Babylon Bee. <laughs> we just both happen to like it. Yes. Well, listeners, thanks for joining us today. As always, any comments, questions, or suggestions can be directed to us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.